The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. Episode 81, and this week we're talking sustainability. It's something none of us can ignore, nor should we, as temperatures rise and freak weather becomes the norm. We're heading to Alentejo in Portugal to find out how one region, the most threatened in Europe by climate change, is putting its own house in order. Plus, later on, as ever, your medal-winning wine recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Climate change is never far from the headlines. And crucially, it's no longer about warnings for the future. It's about the here and now, with rising temperatures and freak weather conditions, sadly, much more frequent. Alentejo is one of Portugal's celebrated wine regions, the second biggest. Only the Douro has more vines planted. And it's also the area of Europe that's apparently most threatened by global warming. In this case, would you believe it, the extension of the Sahara. Conscious that time is not on their side, the region's winemakers have taken matters into their own hands with an innovative sustainability initiative called WASP, the Wines of Alentejo Sustainability Programme. To hear more about it and what's being done and the uh, the crisis that it seeks to mitigate, let's chat to Nick Breeze, ambassador for the programme and also a writer on sustainability, and also Mafalda Vasquez from the winery Herdade dos Grosch, a member of the programme. Uh, Nick and Mafalda, welcome to the Drinking Hour. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Uh, let's begin <laughs> with an introduction to Alan Tejo. Uh, for those who I'm sure will be familiar with the name on a bottle, but not necessarily much more than that. Um, Nick, give us the sort of fundamentals, if you would. Well, this is a very large area. It's the largest wine producing area in Portugal, covering a third of the country in, in the southern half between the Atlantic and the Spanish border. Uh, it's very historical. And if you go to the regional capital of Aurora, you'll see this beautiful Roman temple there. And that's really showing you the history of winemaking there as well. And there's a history of terracotta, which goes back in, I think it's called Talia. Mafalda can correct me if I get anything wrong, but the Talia is being reintroduced today in, in, you know, in larger, in larger numbers. Um, the climate, as I understand it, is is very cold in winter and, and very hot and dry in the summer. But all of that, again, is being exacerbated by climate change. And another uh, sort of current feature, I think, is the replacement of international varieties of grapes that are being used across the region with indigenous varieties. And again, that's moving away from a sort of a market-driven philosophy to one, the indigenous varieties that are more adapted to the climate as it's as it's sort of changing. And Mafalda, Portugal has this bewildering 
very beautiful array of indigenous grape varieties. Uh, it's often said that uh, when uh, in 1986, when Portugal uh, joined what was then probably the EEC, now the EU, they tried to audit the number of grape varieties and, and no one really knew in Portugal how many indigenous <laughs> grape varieties uh, there were. What uh, are the most significant varieties where you are in Alentejo? Yeah, indeed, Portugal is like a huge mixture of different grape varieties. Um, and Alentejo, it's part of Portugal and, of course, a part of this huge mixture. But, of course, uh, there's some grapes that are um, more, let's say, re- regional or traditional from, from, from some from areas. And in Alentejo, I would say that the main one for the whites might be Danton Vaz, which is also very often known as our Chardonnay, let's say. Uh, and then for the reds, I would be a bit more risky and say that Alicante Boucher, for example, it's a very well-adapted grape, uh, even if it's not indigenous, but it's very well-adapted and it's considered consider already a regional grape in Alentejo. Uh, very important and spread, I would say, 100% in all the region, all producers might have at least a plant of this grape. So, yeah, I would say these two can, can be maybe the, the, the two main ones for which represent better Alentejo. Uh, but then, of course, there's much more like Trincadair or uh, Aragonés, for example. Maybe Arinto and Ropeiro for the whites as well. But, yeah, the, the two first ones that I mentioned, I think they they express very well what is um, what, what are the grapes more represented in Alentejo. And it's fair to say that you're master blenders, really, aren't you? Because um, uh, uh, most wines I encounter from from Portugal and specifically from Alentejo, they tend to be blends, don't they? Yes. um, It's very, I mean, the last couple of years and also due to the market demand, uh, some single varieties have appeared, but... Still, um, it's much more uh, bland wines that we can find in Alentejo and in other regions in Portugal, but Alentejo also. Um, and yeah, mainly blends in a mixture of different grapes, different percentage, of course. But yeah, blends are actually our main kind of wine. And I've been tasting a, a few of those uh, most stunning white blend uh, from, from your winery uh, last night. But uh, more of that later, maybe. Uh, it was delicious. Um, Nick, um, let's get on to the sort of serious meaty stuff, because you're an ambassador for WASP, uh, which sounds a bit scary uh, for me, especially. Uh, but the, the Wines of Alentejo Sustainability Programme is uh, the acronym. Before we talk about uh, some of what's been achieved, just explain for context, Nick, um, why it was necessary to do something. Sure. Well, I think about 2005, there was a scientific report uh, that was produced by his, a winemaker and climate scientist, uh, Gregory V. Jones, who, who and his colleagues, but they identified Alentejo or southern Portugal as one of the most climate vulnerable regions in the world for making wine. And I think the if we look around the world today, we can see that that vulnerability is actually in so many different places. Um, it, that's become very apparent, but it, it has been proven true in Alentejo. The area is getting really hot. I think some of the hottest temperatures in the last summer we're down uh, in southern Portugal, around 47 plus degrees. And I think what 
what you're seeing there is climate change in real time. There, there's no, it's not a future issue. It's, uh, it's actually happening now. And you're seeing a huge, you know, unchecked, you're seeing huge evaporation from soils and all this kind of thing. So there's a real need to respond. It's not just about mitigation, which is absolutely necessary, reducing emissions, um, playing the sort of longer term game of reducing our global emissions, but it's also about building adaptation and resilience. And that's where WASP really came about. The Wines of Alentejo program emerged from a dialogue between producers and the Wine Commission. Mm-hmm. And I think it's um it's by necessity. It's not about it's not anticipating, it's actually responding. Mafalda, Nick makes the point that this is a, a now issue, not one to talk about that might be scary and happen in the future. From a winemaking and, and grape growing perspective, tell us about some of the effects of climate change that you in your day job are already seeing. Well, of course, during the last couple of years, uh, the climate change uh, impacts and effects are being uh, facing us, uh, I would say, in a very severe mode. And of course, one of the main effects is translate in, a, first of all, in an anticipation of the um, of the harvest because of the early maturation of some grape varieties or that all grape varieties are actually ripe quite soon comparing to previous years. And this sends us to another, another part of the process, um, more in the winery, uh, which results in higher alcohols uh, and less fresh wines uh, with very low acidities. So this might be like the main let's say, the main picture of the, the effects or the main effects of the climate change. Uh, but of course, we, we as winemakers and grape growing growers, we've, we've been fighting quite hard. Uh, and it's not uh, a today's work. It's been very hard work in the last, last years. Um, and of course, this means that new plantations, for example, they have different uh, sun orient- or orientation and exposure. The canopies have to be um, more well adapted to this kind of temperatures and, and episodes, and so they have to be more prepared to to get more to give more resistance to the to the vines and to the grapes, and and of course um, all the the manage of the soil and water and everything. It's very important. And this means that we have to pick the grapes early, as I said before, um, in order to get these this wines with a, a reasonable alcohol content uh, with good acidity and keep more or less, trying to keep as much as possible a good acidity uh, to, to have wines that still have potential to be aged and wines that still satisf- satisfy the, the consumers um, with their own profile. So, yeah, it's it's a hard job, but it has to be do- done and it's been doing for us, I would say, since the beginning of the project back in 2004. These heat spikes that we get, we even had it happen in London, which is not exactly renowned for its you know fair weather, but we had 40 degree heat in London uh, in one of those spikes um, this year. Clearly, uh, the temperatures went far higher where you are. What do those heat spikes do to the vines? Well, first of all, um, 
And this summer, for example, uh, where we are located, like south, as Nick said, south part of, of Alentejo, um, uh, we achieved 52. I think this was the highest temperature degrees that we got uh, in mid of July. Um, and of course, this means that the, the grapes or the vines, they cannot resist and they, they just stop the development. And this means that the maturation is going to be in risk for sure. And of course, after, well, one is that. So the, the, the plants just stop in order to protect themselves. So we don't have the, the maturation going on. And then, of course, then, and this is a very big problem, and that's why we've been working more and more with the canopy of the of the vines, uh, trying to promote a bigger one um, to protect the grapes and to protect the plant from the sunburn, which is actually the huge. The I I mean I think is the, the actual actually the biggest problem with this kind of uh, it spikes. And then uh, in our case, it's because we just planted a new a new area last year. We just um, decided to plant uh, autochthonous and indigenous uh, grape varieties in order to get them because they are more resilient with to this extreme episode. So um, in the future, we can say we cannot say that we're going to be protected against 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 this uh, heat spike, but we can be a little bit more comfortable, let's say, um, facing this kind of episodes. Nick, uh, there's the problem. Uh, tell us about uh, WASP, the Wines of Alentejo Sustainability Programme, what it's actually uh, trying to achieve. It's a programme that was set up, as I said, you know, a sort of dialogue between the producers and the commission. And the objective was to build resilience and one thing that had to be done is everything had to be assessed. And what are you trying to do? Well, okay, we, we want to survive. We want to make sure that uh, we've got a few thousand years of history making wine here. We don't want this to be the end. We want this, this is a junction. We, we want to keep going. So we need a pathway to the future. And what they've done is gone around and made assessments, looked at what people are doing, looked at what people are doing in other regions and developed strategies, workshops, um, and Mafalda could probably feed into this, but Jal Barroso, who manages the program, created this idea of sharing knowledge across producers so that they could, in effect, accelerate the responses. Because if one person's doing something well, you know, previously you might have regarded the others as competitors. So you would think, oh, this is good for me and I'll keep doing it. But now it's how can I share this with you you share back with me what does or does not work and we accelerate our regional response to this massive program and um, sorry this massive this response to this massive problem that's really what the program has been doing it's been sharing knowledge it's been accelerating the response jow goes around and measures everything that everyone says they're doing he checks that they are doing it so after doing that for six years they realized that they had the groundwork for a certification and once you see that they've been certified, that means that they've, they're have they doing the right things that are based on mitigation, which is reducing the emissions, but also the adaptation and the sort of stewardship of the land. And I think that's um, critical to this, is that the, the trust is, the certificates represent the trust and the work that's being done and what's being achieved. Mafalda, um, it, it is very much a, a collegiate approach uh, between wineries, isn't it? People who you might have regarded as your competitors 
previously, as Nick was saying, you're working very closely to share information and expertise, aren't you? Yeah, I used to say that WASP is a sort of sharing program um, more than everything. So, um, and since the beginning, uh, I think this was the main goal. And João Barroso, uh, the manager of the program, um, is 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 doing a very good job in, as Nick mentioned, um, in this matter. So um, what was probably a competitor in the past, as soon as we joined the program and as, as soon as we made part of the program, we see each other uh, as friends and as a very good value for our own project. So, yeah, it's a very... Very impressive program uh, and a very joinable program, actually. So sharing and a joinable program that makes a lot of difference and that keep us as producers uh, very close to each other, definitely. Mm. Well, that does make an awful lot of sense. Um, tell us what <laughs> you've already done at your own winery uh, to make an impact as part of this program. The main thing about joining the join the, the program is translating a more um, measuring measuring and um, trying to measure as, and control as much as possible a lot of aspects and of, of course decreasing our carbon footprint so um, after joining the program we, we joined the program in 2015 and after this of course we start all the measurements that we were not uh, able to do in the past and with the the program we 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 start to be able to to make it and to, to start to measure it and after this in 2018 uh, and again because of a good cooperation between the program a university in Lisbon and us as a producer we had a student uh, who developed his master thesis here at Herdados Grove in order to give us the tool to allow us to calculate our carbon footprint in all of our wine value chain. So since then, we've been calculated. So since 2018, we've been calculating our carbon footprint. And it's very important to to understand what, what we, we are doing uh, then and um, the measure the measures and the, the things that we have to implement to reduce this carbon footprint. Of course, our goal is achieve the neutrality in 2020, uh, sorry, to 2050. Uh, but of course, this takes a lot of time. And one of the, one of the things that we, we've done to reduce our carbon footprint, for example, it was um, reducing the weight of some of our wine bottles. Actually, the bottle that we use for our main wine or the, the wine that we produce in bigger quantity, which uh, which results in a reduction of a 50 tons of CO2 equivalent. So it's quite a good amount. And of course, this means a decrease of the cost, uh, production costs, which is also very interesting. Uh, but then um, the program is so, so so general in a way that it can be very focused on the environment aspects, but also in, on the social aspects, on the economical aspects, as like this, the, the, the reduction of the costs, uh, which actually allow us to then go to different ways and work in a very different ways. Uh, but this gives us more, um, let's say, motivation to 
to be part of other other organizations or other groups of work, work groups uh, which um, drove us to another places, uh, very interesting places, of course, uh, like the International Wineries for Climate Action that we just joined um, this year, uh, which is an um, organization that is commitment to annually reduce the greenhouses gases and, as I said, um, achieve the carbon neutrality in 2050. Um, and of course, we make part of this project and we are very focused on that. Um, and this kind of initiatives are very important for us and for, for the company. And without the program, we'll not be able to be aware and to, to be in touch with this kind of projects, let's say. Yeah. So one step leads kind of into another, I, mm-hmm. I guess. Nick, um, yeah. water is a big focus uh, in the program, and the wine industry doesn't have a great track record when it comes to use of water, does it? Well, no, but I think I do think that was kind of reflective of uh, our wider regard for water. We we see it as a pretty endless thing. You turn on the tap, and it comes out. And I think what's happening now is is that we're we're not quite keeping a pace with the changes needed. So, um, I was on the call with some hydrologists this morning who are talking about the concern in the wine industry, for example, about these heat waves and what it's doing to the water cycle. He was describing the water in the ground where we, that we use for viticulture and agriculture more widely as a, a sort of current account. If we have a few hot years, we're, we're sort of depleting our current account. But if those few turn into many, eventually we hit zero. And now... We have to start looking at what we can do here. And, and this kind of crosses over our response to this sort of whole issue, crosses over into things like regenerative uh, viticulture and agriculture, where soil management helps capture water when it comes in these heavier downpours. Or, you know, we, we're talking about a complete change of the hydrological cycle. So the wine industry, like every other that has a massive dependency on water, has to sort of respond it has to be very reactive to this issue so nick how is water use part of this particular program well i think it's um it's measuring there's a a phrase that's used quite often was if you don't measure you don't care and measuring your water use finding ways right across the whole business to reduce your water use and i think mafalda as as you can talk about specifics of of you know, how water is being economised within the business. It might be good to hear. And Mafalda, as Nick was suggesting, this is really one for you. What are you doing specifically on water use? Yeah, well, as uh, I think the main word using on this conversation is going to be measure. <laughs> and of course, we started measure our water consumption um, pr- more precisely when we joined the programme. Uh, and this and this drove us to another reality. So we could, um, we we were sure about our ratio uh, between liters of water per liter liter of wine produced. Um, and then we start to make a lot of different um, actions in order to reduce as or reduce yes the this ratio as much as possible. Um, and for instance, this year we just invest in a new wastewater. Uh, treatment system uh, in our, 
which allow us or will allow us to reuse all the water that we consume in the winery for the irrigation of the green areas and also some agriculture areas. Uh, agriculture areas, I mean vineyards and olive groves and some gardens, um, fruit and vegetable gardens that we also have. Um, and of course, as soon as we, as we have this new system uh, working, um, we, we're going to re reduce for sure our ratio um, in terms of water, what, liters of water per liters of, of wine. But then, of course, um, all the the water irrigation that we made on the vineyards very precise, and all the all the 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 use of soil. Uh, it's probably going to be the, some of the the next points that we're going to talk. But the the soil and the care of soil is very important because this tends to 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 keep the water uh, or to allow us to save more water as well. Uh, this is more in the vineyards or more in the, the agricultural part. Uh, but in the winery, it's, it's, it's such an amount of small uh, things and actions that we can put on practice. Uh, for example, just put the reduction of pressure in all the hoses of the, of the winery, um, give formation to the workers that they, they can reuse uh, the water um, that we use to wash and to clean the, the tanks, for example. Um, and this, by the end of the year, it's, it results in a huge um, reduction of water consumption. Um, and since we started the, the program, our ratio was quite big. I will not say the number because I'm quite shame on that. Uh, but then we've been decreasing and we are not on our best. Uh, of course, the goal is not achieved at all. But uh, I would say that at the moment, we are very close to a ratio uh, of one, which is actually the best uh, that we can achieve. And we are very close on that. So, uh, and of course, we're still working on that to, to have this, this more, more and more close to, to the number one. <laughs> and Nick, soil, another big focus of the programme. Uh, many vineyards are monocultures uh explain a bit more about uh, monocultures well monocultures are exactly are exactly that they it's just one one crop that is basically being intensely farmed for the benefit of capture you know the harvest and what that tends to do it drives out other species and that makes it less fertile and that means you have to add um, synthetic products to it to keep driving um, the cycle. And we've been doing that at, a, an, at an industrial scale across viticulture, but also across agriculture more widely. And it's basically, um, it's destroying the soil, but it's also impacting biodiversity really negatively. So that monoculture is... It's good for us in the short term, but in the long term, it's completely unsustainable. And Nick, tell us more about regenerative viticulture, uh, what it means and why it's so important. I interviewed, as part of the work I was doing with Alan Tejo, I interviewed uh, Professor Kimberly Nicholas, who's a 
We've got a lot of experience in wine coming from California, but also um, in climate change as a climate change scientist. And she was, she's been doing a lot of research into regenerative um, agriculture and viticulture. And she describes it as working with nature rather than what we were just talking about, which was working against nature. And to that end, we start looking at how we can protect the soil first. I mean, the soil uh, is an amazing sort of ecosystem on its own before we looking start looking above it. So protecting that means increasing the number of plants that are growing there, which are which grow well together, some which will flower to encourage uh, fertilizers and uh, pollinators and so on. So you start creating an environment whereby it's a living ecosystem. And this regenerative approach means that it can kind of look after itself. And to do that, and you need strong life in the soil, microbial life, but you also need stuff going on above. And when you get in a sort of invasive bugs or something like that, you might have a predator that naturally comes along and is able to exist on those. And it's about sort of almost removing yourself from the equation as, as the, as the farmer and, and, hopefully allowing it to exist on its own and then you still get your fruit and and so on and so forth so the, the regenerative thing i think the good way to i think that i like the phrasing of working with nature as a, as opposed to against it mafalda biodiversity more generally it's a, a very significant priority for your winery isn't it um yeah for sure uh since since the beginning um Sustainability and biodiversity, they've been uh, together uh, in the philosophy of, of the company. Um, and we see that uh, that is very important that the companies of the wine sector act uh, in order to stop and mitigate uh, this kind of effects that will um, destroy the biodiversity, the biodiversity that we have in our, in our land. Um, and yeah, at Herdados Grows, we adopted um, a biodiversity program, which is mainly focused on our land mosaic uh, and promoting this land mosaic uh, with the aim to converting the non-productive areas into areas uh, where the biodiversity can, can, can increase and where we can promoting uh, the existent um, ecosystem services which will, of course, um, give a lot of benefits to the vineyards and to the, the other crops that we have um, planted and, um, and that we have here in, at our estate. Uh, so, yes, definitely uh, by promoting biodiversity and save uh, as much as possible our soils and hairs and, and water, um, is definitely um, a priority uh, to to us, and it should be to actually, well, at least to everybody in the wine sector. And Nick, as I understand it, uh, WASP is all about sharing uh, in that kind of knowledge is power kind of way. Uh, shared knowledge is, is shared power, I guess. Well, yes, and this, this comes back to a little bit of what we touched on before about this moving from being competitors to collaborators. And uh, we've got a real problem with, with climate change. And there's a word that scientists use a lot, of, which is exponential. The, the, the acceleration of these extremes and the changes in the climate system are 
exponential. That means they're accelerating and they're kind of accelerating against us. But that doesn't mean everything's lost. It just means that we've got to, as a species, if you like, as the uh, the most dominant species at the moment on the planet, we've we've got to exponentiate our response to it. And that whole idea of uh, knowledge knowledge shared and it it really means that that's probably our biggest tool to to fight climate change it's it's one of the things that we can do to exponentiate this response and i think it, i mean it it's really critical across so many different areas of society and and it's one thing that it, it's a kind of low hanging fruit for us but it also goes across much of a goes against much of our 20th century thinking which was always about competing and it's you know so it's it's a kind of a, it's a it's a paradigm shift for humans to to start working like we often profess we should uh, when we're learning as children about being good humans we, we we profess to want to share but when we grow up we we compete and so we've got to try and try and be more idealistic in the real world i think Mafalda, have you seen a positive reaction from other regions and uh, consumers as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think a national wine sector uh, is for sure uh, being and becoming more and more aware of all of these sustainability issues. Um, and we have the biggest good example in the region, of course, uh, where we see a lot of um, wine producers and wine growers and winemakers joining the, the program. Uh, but of course, we, we, we are seeing a huge movement of the other regions trying to um, create uh, tools, at least, which allow us, them, of course, to, to create um, sort of a wasp um, in a way, uh, but at but at least to create something that will help them to to be uh, more aware and um, to give them more uh, tools, I would say tools, uh, to facing all of these huge problems uh, that we've been um, facing in the last couple of years. And so, Mafalda, you're seeing those positive effects already from the programme. What do you hope its legacy might be? As I said, since the beginning, uh, our strategy uh, was to achieve greater climate resilience, um, not only today and to support our business model, but to guarantee that that we will live something um, that for the next generations that will be better um, or at least equal um, than than the planet or than the land that we will use now um, and that we are working now. So yeah, I think the main legacy of the program uh, is to is all about to make us thinking about the future uh, in a good way, of course, uh, and trying to to find uh, again against all the the bad things that we've been facing the last years, yeah. And Nick, I'll put the same question to you. What do you hope will be the legacy of this particular programme? We talk about um, communicating these things and, and sort of engaging the public and also the sort of gatekeepers 
to the public as well, the people who put the wine on the shelves that the public can choose from. And, you know, that I would hope that the, the legacy is is that we engage more people to increase their choices at the point of purchase so that they can support this work. I think the research, I sent some research last week that showed the amount of people in the UK, for example, was in something like 70 to 80% of people of adults were very, very concerned about climate change and were prepared to give to charities that supported um, biodiversity and this kind of thing. And I think that from a wine perspective, these guys down in Alentejo are holding back the Sahara. If you look at the science, it shows the Sahara is sweeping north into southern Europe. And these estates are integrated estates. Quite often they might have a cork forest, they might have other crops, olives, or you know, vines are part of that integrated estate. But they're also keeping those soils alive and that so living soil and plants and everything is pushing back the Sahara, in many respects, that benefits us in the UK because it slows down those heat waves that are gradually and persistently moving north. So I think there's a really complex issue where everything is to play for and we really need all the public on side. So, you know, very grateful to you for having us on here to be able to talk about this because, again, someone may hear it and it changing people one set of ears at a time is, is very valuable. Yeah, Nick uh, Mafalda, it's uh, a really inspiring uh, program, uh, and I wish you both uh, the very best of luck with it. It's great to hear uh, a little more about uh, what's being done to to make a difference. Uh, so, thank you very much indeed for joining us, Nick and Mafalda, here on the Drinking Hour. Thank you very thank much. You so much. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. Thank you, Nick. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Well, we round off, as ever, with some IWSC medal winners. Uh, we try to keep it topical where we can. Uh, so Portugal is our focus, and where better to start, as we've heard so much about it, than uh, Alentejo. Adega de Borba, uh, Castelo de Borba Anteo Vaus 2021 was a silver medal winner. Uh, overseeing the judging uh, was Dessu Viana Jr., Master of Wine, uh, Brazil's first MW, a specialist on the wines of Portugal and a previous guest on that subject here on The Drinking Hour. If you've got a good memory, if not, then do go back and have a listen. Uh, also on the panel here were Rebecca Palmer of Corny and Barrow, another former guest on The Drinking Hour. Uh, this is uh, from the sub-region of Borba, this particular wine, and Anteo Vash uh, was one of the signature grapes of the region that uh, Mafalda was uh, talking about earlier. The judging panel gave this wine 91 points, a silver medal, and here's the panel's tasting note. Notes of vibrant citrus and a nicely balanced, rounded palate with a touch of almond. Uh, relatively short tasting note, but a, a worthy winner of a silver medal by the sounds of it. Uh, here's a, a red blend for which Alentejo is uh, famed. Herdade do Peso Reserva 2018 was a silver medal winner. This is uh, part of the mighty uh, Sograp uh, group, um, really significant presence uh, across Portugal. A uh, number of uh, wineries and brands uh, in that particular 
uh, group. Uh, this wine is majority, 72% Alicante Boucher, uh, with 15% Petit Verdo and 13% Syrah. Uh, the judging panel uh, was overseen this time by Mick O'Connell, MW, another ex-guest of uh, the Drinking Hour in the early days, waxing lyrical about Chardonnay. And also on the panel, Eric Zwiebel, Master Sommelier, and Mathieu uh, Longuere, uh, MS, uh, from uh, Cordon Bleu. And Rebecca Palmer was there again, too. Quite a panel. And here's what they had to say. Autumnal aromas of ripe brambles and savoury earthy notes with a splash of vanilla and concentrated tannin structure, giving a rich, focused palate and a long, lingering finish. Let's go a little further afield. And not that you have to go that far in Portugal, not the hugest country in the world. Um, We can't mention Portugal without a Madeira. Uh, So we're going uh, offshore here. Uh, to the beautiful island of Madeira. Justino's Madeira Wines single cast Seychelle Dry 2005 uh, was not just a gold medal winner with 97 points, but also a trophy winner, best in show. Uh, the panel overseen by Dessieu, again, we call him Junior, and this is what they had to say. An attractive and aromatic offering with savoury nut aromas which carry onto the palate. Layers of fresh fig, plum and honey notes are brightened with a touch of intense orange oil. Wonderfully balanced and energetic. I love a Madeira and that sounds delicious. And we can't mention Portugal without a port either. Very special one, a gold medal winner, 98 points for this one. Barros Coleta, 1974. Uh, This is part of the um, Soje Venus uh, fine wines uh, portfolio. And this particular port is equal parts Tinta Barocca, uh, Turiga Francesa, uh, Tinta Rores and Turiga Nacional. Uh, Colheta, as the name suggests, and that's uh, an aged tawny port uh, made with grapes from a, a single vintage, um, aged in barrel, uh, the idea being it's ready to drink uh, when uh, it's bottled, when you buy it effectively. Here's what the panel had to say as they gave it their golden seal of approval superlative concentration and complexity juxtaposed with excellent freshness vibrant acidity emerges from pristine fresh strawberries and glossy cherry fruit this harmonizes with nutmeg spice nutty tones dried fruit and luxurious sweet creme caramel threads delicious too finally uh i wanted to mention this one uh, it's a silver medal winning wine it's from uh, the dow uh, region just kind of south of uh, the, the Douro, north of Alentejo. And it's from a winery I visited uh, a few years ago. It's a wine I enjoyed recently with friends uh, from a previous vintage, the 2017, I think. Excellent wine. Uh, Casa da Passarella, Abanico, Reserva 2020. It's uh, a white blend. I'm fairly certain uh, it's got some uh, Encruzado in there. Um, but uh, it doesn't actually specify the grape varieties, so that's just my hunch. Uh, it won 90 points, and here's what the panel had to say. Uh, citrus and tinned stone fruit with oak, giving the wine its richness and layers of spice. A searing acidity stands out on the finish. Simple, but very well made. And I would echo that. Really delicious wine, based on the, the one I enjoyed the other day. That's it for another episode of The Drinking Hour. My thanks to Nick and Mafalda, and the best of luck 
to them as well with WASP, the Wines of Alentejo Sustainability Programme. If you want to know more about it, there's a dedicated page online. Best way to find it is to do a Google search for the Wines of Alentejo Sustainability Programme because the web address is very long and complicated. Um, So do that. uh, And thank you for listening. Hope it's uh, provided some inspiration or at least some hope. And do join us again next time for another episode of The Drinking Hour. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Food FM Radio. And I am Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. But for now, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.